And this morning, of course, we continue our series that we've entitled For the Love of God. It is a series that we have waited, I have personally waited 30 years to really begin to explore with you together here on Sunday morning, because it is a series that deals with one of the cornerstone characters of our Heavenly Father and of Jesus Christ, and that is His love for us. When we talk about the love of God, we cannot simply talk about it in theoretical or academic terms, even from a position of theology. It is so vastly superior to any simple written word. It is the embodiment of Jesus Christ in His fullest. So approaching such a subject, how do you embrace it properly? How do you truly appreciate all that it is worth. It's, for example, it is like you seeing a picture of the Grand Canyon on television or in an encyclopedia or a magazine and reading about the immenseness of the Grand Canyon. It's one thing to see it from that perspective. It's another thing to travel to Arizona and to walk to the very edge of the Grand Canyon and look over the vastness for yourself. Or if you've never been to the ocean, people may talk about the surf and the waves and the horizons and the sunsets and sunrises, but until you see it for yourself, you can't truly embrace it. I believe that the love of God is something that we must not only know about, but experience in our Christian life. That often takes time. As I have now been a Christian for over 30 years, at 16 years old, when I first got saved, it was the love of God that confronted me, if I may say, in such a reckless way, in a way that just absolutely changed my life forever. And I believe that as we continue to know and to grow in the love of God, it will transform our lives forever. And that's why we're doing this together. We began our series by looking at that moment where God pierced the veil in such a unique way that in His only begotten Son, the embodiment of His own love, He sent His Son to this earth with a specific mission and purpose in mind, but also indicated through the Scriptures the motive in which He sent His Son, which was love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That being said, as we continue looking at this, we saw Christ pierce that veil. And as God was motivated by His love to send His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Then we looked at individuals who came while Jesus was uh, in the midst of His three-year ministry. Three years is the period of time that Jesus Christ spent with His disciples after gathering them and then ended with the, of course, crucifixion and then three days later, the cross. In those three years, He was confronted by two different individuals asking, number one, what is the greatest commandment of all? to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The second scribe came to him later on and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And God says, what does the Scripture say? What does the law say? How do you read it? 
You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the core essence of Christianity. Christianity is far from simply being defined as a religion. As we look at Christianity, and if we simply conclude that it is a religion in and of ourselves, we have missed the dynamic of Christianity altogether. Religion in man's idea of it is the attempt to either obtain or maintain a salvation or a favor from the God in which they worship. Man in his own efforts trying to earn the favor, the pleasure, the pleasing, the deity in which they embrace, in which they worship in hopes of some type of positive blessing, some type of positive interaction or deliverance or salvation altogether for some type of eternal hope. But that is so far from the essence of Christianity. It wasn't man's endeavor to try to reach God in and of himself through either his good deeds or his own personal commitment or his own personal desires. It was God who reached down to man and said, I will save you if you believe in me. And I am doing this because I love you. That's Christianity. It's not us reaching up to God. It is God reaching down to us. Captured in those two wonderful commands of Jesus to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But now as we make our way to John 15, uh, 13, excuse me, we find now Jesus the night before his crucifixion leaving the disciples with this incredible instruction. And we are doing it in this progression because I wanted you to see that from beginning to end, he wanted the disciples to catch this idea. And as they are gathered there in the upper room to partake in Passover just before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, moments before his betrayal by Judas to the Roman authorities and to the religious leaders of that day, Judas has now left to betray Jesus, and as they are now gathered in the upper room, Judas has left, the eleven are left, and Jesus is now speaking to them in a very direct and a very specific manner in hopes that they catch how significant what he is about to say is for them to understand. And so we pick it up in verse 31 of chapter 13. And when he had gone out, that is Judas, when he left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and glory, glorify him at once." Now, if I were to tell you this verse is about glory, would it surprise you? Found there five times in one verse. The moment has now come that Jesus had announced earlier in his ministry. Again, from the time he started with the disciples to his crucifixion, there was only about a three-year period of time. We're not talking about a long period of time, short in the 33 years of the life of Christ. 
But now he is saying to them, I want you to catch this. This is the moment that I've been talking about. This is the moment that I spoke about when I talked about the hour is coming that uh, the Father has appointed for me. This is it. It's beginning right now. It's trying to gain their attention. Now, being Jewish and the disciples following Christ for the purpose of the establishment of the kingdom of God... The Jewish mindset is very important to understand if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying to us here in verse 31. The Jewish disciples that followed Jesus Christ were waiting for the physical kingdom of God to be established here on this earth. It was a a hope, it was a promise that they found in the Messiah of the Old Testament that they had waited for so earnestly. In fact, after the crucifixion, when Jesus rose on the third day and we stand with him in Acts chapter 1, the very first question out of the disciples' mouth is, now is the kingdom, are you going to establish the kingdom now here on this earth? That was their mindset. Remember, we had, <laughs> we had the mother of two of the disciples come to Jesus and say, listen, when you establish your kingdom, can my son sit on your right hand and on your left? And so their idea of him being glorified was an ascension to the throne there in Jerusalem. A physical ascension to the throne establishing the kingdom of God here on earth. And so when he begins to talk about being glorified, when he says, this is my time, this is what I've come for, it is at this moment in my obedience to God the Father that I'm going to glorify him and then he's going to glorify me and he's going to glorify me at once. They all anticipated that this was the moment that he was going to physically reign there in Jerusalem and that he would have the, you know, dominion over all the earth and all the nations would come through Jerusalem to worship the God of, the, of all creation. And yet, Jesus had something completely different in mind. For it wasn't going to be the ascension to the throne that was going to glorify the Father in his obedience. It was going to be the ascension on the cross. It was going to be ridiculed and mocked by his own creation. It was going to be that moment that he suffered that the, the lashing of the 39 uh, cat and nine tails, and it was at that moment that he would be mocked by the Roman soldiers and the crown of thorns would be put on his head and he'd be uh, draped in a horse blanket of purple, uh, which they said, here's the king's robe and so forth. And then while his face was still covered, they, they, they hit him without him being able to deflect the punch at any moment in time. It was a horrific moment. And from our vantage point, from the disciples' vantage point, they thought all was lost. In fact, they scattered. They weren't found at the scene of the cross except John with his mother, with Jesus' mother Mary at the foot of the cross. They left. They didn't know how to interpret what was taking place before them. But Jesus said, this is the moment that I have come for. 
See, no one knew fully what he was doing, even though he fully told them. They didn't get it. And though he was glorifying God the Father by his perfect obedience, God the Father then chose to glorify the Son, allowing for that moment to be remembered in history for all eternity, the moment that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the world there on the cross, and then immediately glorified him three days later by raising him from the dead, saying that the offering that my son made on behalf of the sinful world, I have accepted. And so Jesus is preparing for his death. They're thinking his ascension into the throne because this is the moment, the hour that they've been waiting for. But then Jesus, in verse 32 takes it one step farther to help them understand this moment in further clarity he brings them to a moment that a jewish individual would have certainly understood when we talk about glorifying god we often we say it we affirm its necessity We feel it's important. But if you were to ask someone specifically, what does it mean to glorify God? I think specific answers would vary greatly. In that culture, to glorify someone meant to bring honor to them. Jesus wanted nothing more to bring honor to his heavenly father. And he brought that honor to his heavenly father by being perfectly obedient in all things. But secondly, glorify also means to make God known for who he truly is. To make God known for who he truly is. The Father was a mystery to the Jewish people. And consistently through the Gospels, you will find them at different times, the disciples, that is, asking Jesus to reveal the Father to them. And finally, Jesus said it this way. He said that if you've seen me, you have seen God the Father. This was an extraordinary thing to say. Anyone else saying this would have been killed immediately for blasphemy. But Jesus said it, and he could say it rightfully so, because he himself was God, the second person of the glorious Trinity. And thirdly, When it means to glorify one, it means to heap respect for him because he is the only one to respect. Meaning that my endeavor to glorify God is indicating not only to myself, but to all around me that he is the only one who is worth the adoration in which I am giving him. And so Jesus had these three in mind when he says, I'm going to glorify my Father, and in return, my Father is going to glorify me. Undoubtedly, the disciples were thinking of Isaiah 49.3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And Jesus knew that the Father would glorify him at once in the resurrection, a comment on Isaiah 49.3. So we're speaking of his death. We're speaking of the resurrection. And in verse 33, if you look here with me, he now turns to the disciples. 
and he addresses them in a very specific manner. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I had said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. John uses this phrase, little children, several times throughout the Johannine epistles and in the Gospel of John. This type of interaction by Jesus addressing his disciples as little children and using the words in Greek in which he has used, he was setting the stage for that moment that a father would be on his deathbed, his children surrounding him, and he then giving the blessing to the firstborn or giving his final instructions to his children in general, it was a moment of anticipation of his departure, that Jesus was leaving them, that Jesus soon would be gone out of their presence. And he's telling them, right now you cannot follow me where I go. And that is, of course, the cross and death and then, of course, the resurrection. Though we know that 11 out of the 12 died a martyr's death for the purpose of Jesus Christ. We find through history that each disciple was given the opportunity to recant his faith in Christ and yet was willing to go to their own death because they not only believed in Jesus but they believed that they were loving him as he loved them. Jesus made it clear that the manifestation of love for one within this umbrella of Christianity was one laying down his life for another. So when the disciples were confronted with that ultimatum by their captors and those who were about to execute them, They didn't simply go to their death simply because they had faith and they believed in all the miracles in which they saw. Let's remember that when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, they saw ten plagues, one resulting in the death of the firstborn that was spared by the Passover blood. They then traveled with Moses through the wilderness and saw God do all kinds of miracles on their behalf to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptian, but yet they still faltered in their faith. They still had difficulty. They still turned against God. They still questioned him and doubted him. And the moment that Moses was gone for any length of period of time, they would once again be considering, let's go back to Egypt. Let's make a God for ourselves and so on and so forth. So I don't believe that it was simply the miracles that they saw Jesus perform or simply the words in which he spoke. I believe it was the love that he had for them and their love for him that allowed them to go to their own death. Historians tell us that Peter was crucified upside down. I believe that's an accurate description of his execution based on the sources that we have. But there's also a second scroll that states that Peter had the opportunity of saving his wife from being crucified if Peter would recant his faith in Christ, 
he could have saved not only himself, but his wife from being executed also. And I'm sorry, but the love that Peter had for his wife is well documented in historical sources. We know that Peter's wife traveled with him as he traveled. He was a family man. That being said, something must have superseded the love of his own wife to allow him, think of that now, to allow him to go, allow her to go to her death and not recant his faith in Christ. It must have been his love. I was listening to a soldier who came back from the Middle East and he said that it is not heroism or bravery that causes one to throw himself on a grenade to save his fellow soldiers. It's his love for his fellow soldiers that would allow him to sacrifice his own life on behalf of others. I thought that was incredibly insightful. And Jesus is now saying, I am going to lay down my life for you. And right now, you will continue on for a while. You will not be required to do what I am doing right now. You're not going to follow me right now. You can't. He knew that they weren't prepared and they weren't ready and they had not come to that place of maturity that would allow them to die on the behalf of their Savior. That was still yet coming. But now he had their attention. They knew something was more to this hour of glorification than simply the ascension to the throne there in Jerusalem. Something more was happening. There was going to be a separation. He was going to be put to death. He was going to be given over to the hands of his enemies and betrayed by one amongst them just as he predicted he would. And now he has gathered us as a father would his children as he lie on his deathbed in his moment before his departure. And the father not mincing words at that moment, not knowing how much longer that he would have, gave to them the most clearest, specific direction that he could that was important to him. Fun fact for you, quoting Paul Blart, 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy with the same overtones. Paul was about to go to his death. Timothy was his son in the faith. And he wrote 2 Timothy. And if you read 2 Timothy in that light, I believe it gives such a a different perspective to the words in which Paul wrote. But what did Jesus want to say at this moment that he had his disciples' attention to this degree, to this moment? Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. Now, for the Jewish person, the only one who could give a commandment of this, uh, of, of such as this, would have been God Himself. For Jesus to say a new commandment, He is claiming to be God. And they would have known that. I believe that the disciples already at this point have embraced him as God, as the Messiah, but not, didn't fully understand his mission going forward. And now he is t- telling them a new command I give to you. And the words in the Greek mean this. I'm giving you a new command 
that holds to a new standard. The newness of the command is more of a refresh. It's a, a refreshing of a commandment that is already given, which would have been unheard of for any rabbi, Levitical priest, or high priest to do in that culture. You did not mess with the Word of God. And for Jesus to do this, He is saying, I am God and I'm going to refresh this commandment. And He says now, I give you, to you this new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, remember back with me. Jesus said that the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's obviously directed from the individual to God in a vertical manner. Then the horizontal was standard by this. You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. That was the standard. Now he is saying, you shall love one another as I have loved you. No longer is simply loving yourself the standard and by which you should love everyone else. I'm now saying that the love that I have showed you is the new standard for you to love one another within. That's what he is saying here. And so the disciples would have grasped this, I think, immediately. They would have understood that he is now saying that there's a new benchmark. The love that I have loved you with, the love that they saw demonstrated from the beginning of his ministry with them to the very time that he goes to the cross, and of course then therefore after to the resurrection, the love in which Jesus loved them is now the love in which he is requiring of his disciples to love one another within. He then goes on to say in verse 35, one of the most extraordinary statements of identifying one who is truly a follower of Jesus Christ. By this, verse 35 all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the basis for identifying us as followers of Jesus Christ. This should be the litmus test that the world can place us under to know if we are truly following Christ or not. And that is, are we loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ the way Christ loved us? That's what he is saying. That was the most important thing for him to convey at this moment with his disciples. And for him to say that this will be the identifying factor to allow people to know that you are truly one of my disciples. Now, in that culture at that time, while Jesus was with them, they were identified as Jesus' followers simply because they followed Jesus, right? Wherever he went, they went, etc. And by them following him as they did, they were then seen and considered to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But what happens after God, Jesus departs? How will people know that we are truly followers of Jesus after he is no longer physically present with us? 
Jesus is saying it this way. They're going to know that you're still following me by the love that you have for one another. So would you consider that important? Yeah. You know, Christians, unfortunately, are known for a lot of things today. I wish it was this. I wish, it was, I wish we were known for the love that we have for one another. I wish this was the characteristic that the world, oh yeah, you know, every time I see Christians, they just love each other so amazingly. It's just incredible. Unfortunately, that's often uh, not the tagline that we carry or the hashtag that we uh, are burdened with. But this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is now known to be the standard, and this is the love that is gauged by the standard in which we carry. So how then did Jesus love us? You can find the demonstration of his love for us in, of course, those things that he has done for us. Of course, the Father says, I have loved you by sending my Son for you. Jesus washing their feet. Jesus having compassion upon them. Jesus feeding them. Jesus uh, taking care of the poor, interacting with the social outcasts. Those are all demonstrations of this love. Of course, then going and dying on the cross, not for his own sins, for he was perfect, but for the sins of all of us. That's love. But this was such a dynamic statement in that culture that John felt it necessary to explain it further in his first epistle. Paul the Apostle had a greater challenge. For Paul, after coming to saving faith in Christ, was then commissioned by God to go into the Gentile regions who were unfamiliar with the history of Jehovah, Yahweh. They didn't have the backdrop story. They didn't have the background with God. And so Paul now has to describe and talk about this love to people who have absolutely no idea what it means. And the reason for that is because in that culture, they had so many different words for love that it depended on which word that you, ha- you used would allow an individual to maybe understand what you are trying to say. And think of how uh, incompetent the English language is when it comes to the word love. You know, I can say that I love Lou Malnati's deep dish pizza. And I do. (laughs) But then if I say in the very next breath, oh, I love my wife. Well, then people listening might think, oh, which one does he love more? Well, it all depends. Am I hungry? I know. Uh, but you understand the, the, you know, how incompetent that comparison is. Of course I love my wife much more significantly than I do Lou Malnati's. Now, if it comes to the pizza and the dog, the pizza wins out every single time. But you are starting to understand what I'm saying. So in the Greek culture, they tried to explain their love more thoroughly by these different words in which they had. And one was called eros, which meant a more exotic type of love. It was captured in sexual activity. And of course, today, when you talk about love, one of the very first things that our mind travels to, of course, is physical intimacy, sex. 
But is that a complete definition of love? No, of course not. Not at all. So then the Greeks had the word phileo, which meant, you know, a, a, a friendship type of love between two people, a brotherly type of love. Of course, that's where we get Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. It's now a relationship between two, two people I can understand a little bit clearer. Then there was the word storge. And this was the love that would be used to describe love for an inanimate object, such as that Lou Melnani's pizza. But Jesus, when he talked about love, found a word that had such ambiguity to its definition in the Greek language that that ambiguity allowed him to redefine what the word actually meant. And the word was agape. It's a word for love that was, of course, in the vocabulary of the Greek people. But there was, again, very differing opinions of what that word actually meant. It was rarely ever used. And I see the brilliance of Jesus accepting that because he are using that word because then they would begin to try to define it. And how does he define it for them? Love each other as what? Now he is assigning definition to that word, isn't he? Agape each other as I have agaped you. Okay. Now it's kind of filling in the blank for me. And words they used in this type of love were unconditional, sacrificial, selfless. It's a verb. Check that out. It's not just simply announcing an emotion. It's a noun. It's a verb in action. And through the life of Jesus Christ, it was demonstrated for them and he said, now you go and love each other in the exact same way. This would have demonstrated that the disciples were now living in that kingdom mindset. As Jesus came the first time, there are many who argue, did the kingdom of God start with the first coming of Jesus Christ or is it solely confined to the period of time after his return that we call the millennial kingdom Revelation chapter 20. There are those who have a, a, a mixed understanding, and I think I hold to this camp more, and that's the already not yet, that Jesus Christ inaugurated the kingdom with his coming. It's already starting through his people, and to identify that we are part of that kingdom, we are not identifying ourselves by a creed. We are not identifying ourselves by a, uh, a, a statement of faith. We are demonstrating ourselves by loving each other in this agape love. Isn't that extraordinary? And that's what Jesus is moving us to. Then, of course, when he returns for us and he establishes the kingdom, we will reign with him for that thousand-year period of time. And then the new heavens and earth are created for us for all eternity. But as we continue on as Christians, living in the mindset of Christ, taking the robe of this agape love upon ourselves to love one another within... 
Paul then took a step out, and if you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, the Corinthian church needed to understand what this love was. As you read the letter that Paul wrote to the Gentile Corinthian church, they had all kinds of spiritual activity taking place amongst them in the sense of signs and wonders, gifts of the Spirit were being rendered amongst them within their body. However, though, it doesn't appear that this um, spiritual manifestation through the gifts of the Spirit indicated necessarily a maturity in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul calls them carnal. Paul calls them immature. And of course, the Spirit can give the gifts of the Spirit as He chooses and he, as He wills to those individuals as He has determined. And they were boasting on these things, thinking that they were spiritually mature. But then Paul writes this letter to them and he states to them very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, I don't care what you have going for you. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. Check this out. Verse 1. Now, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, now we're going to go back in the following weeks to look at this more closely, but I want to introduce this passage to you this morning. But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So if I were to speak in tongues, if they be of angels or of men, and yet I have nothing, I do not have love, I might as well just be a gong or a clanging cymbal. There is nothing worse than a person getting behind a drum set who doesn't know what they're doing. They love the symbols, don't they? And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith even to the point where I could remove mountains but have not love, I am what? Nothing. Now, if I give away all that I have to the poor, I'm sorry, if I give away all I have and I am delivered up my body to be burned, even if I allow myself to be personally sacrificed, but have not love, I gain nothing. We're going to be talking about the phrase that Jesus uses, laying down one's life for another as being an indication of love. But what does that actually mean? Because here it appears that a person can be martyred without love and it doesn't mean anything. Kind of, wow, whoa, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, think about it. And then he goes on. Love is patient and is kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude, and it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends or never fails." And as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that is the return of Jesus Christ, and we are now in that perfected state, the partial will pass away. 
And when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. This is, of course, dealing with their carnality. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide in these. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is not an a arbitrary or an am, uh, a word with ambiguity. There is real essence to it. Shakespeare once asked the question, "Where does love originate?" The Bible tells us that God is love. That love, in and of itself, originated with God. And it is interesting that many who simply put the word God in place of the word love in here in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians find that it aptly describes who God is. And as a result, they understand that Paul is not merely giving a vocabulary or a verbal definition to a word. He is describing the example of a person, the person of Jesus Christ. John was so moved by this that in his first epistle, if you turn there with me to 1 John, again introducing this, these passages to you this morning for further explore, exploration later. If we begin in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, if you turn there with me, I should say 11, verse 11. with what we have just learned from Jesus, that we should love one another as He loves us. John writes, in clarification, and that's what I believe 1 John is. 1 John is a clarification of John 13 through 16 of His gospel. A lot on 15 specifically. Listen to what He says here. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of uh, of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren's. Here's one way we can know that we are truly saved in Christ by our love for the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Oh, little children, notice the words again. Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. 
And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the son of Jesus, uh, the son, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us to do. Whoever keeps his commandments abides or continues in God, and God in him. And by this we know that we abide or continue in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Notice what he is saying. This is it. This should be our identifying characteristic, our love for one another, not just any old love, the love that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us in the three years that he was with us and mentored us as our beloved Savior. John goes on, and I'd like to read this in closing if I may. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 4, if you look at this with me, again, just simply introducing these passages to you for further exploration later. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, uh, does not know God because God is, I'm sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because look at this, God is love, affirming that love originated with God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, big word, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, that is God the Father. However, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I stopped there this morning, but John wants us to understand. He wrote this to the church that had just started, new believers that were being saved in the Jewish and Gentile communities. And he said, this characteristic must be the characteristics that carries the cross, the identity of Christianity amongst us. It must be this love that the world looks at and says they are a follower of Jesus Christ. It is interesting to me that Jesus anticipated their wanting of the kingdom to be established at that moment that he spoke to the disciples. And he knew that there was dissension already amongst them, wasn't there? They were already fighting for positions of prominence in the kingdom of God while Jesus was with them. Can I be the greatest one? Can I sit at your right hand and so forth? What better way for Jesus to bring them into humility than say, listen, don't try to step over each other for places of prominence, but in humility, love one another as I have loved you. Brilliant showing that this love would allow them to continue in unity and move forward, to see each other as greater than they themselves, to allow them to remain as one going forward in accomplishing all that God would have them to do in this world. Now, three things I want you to remember for today. As we love one another as Christ has loved us, the world may look upon it 
not fully understand it. And we may wonder if it is truly having the impact upon those who see us that it should. And that impact that it has on an individual may not take its full effect right away, but it may take years later. When Stephen was being stoned before a young man named Saul, as Saul held the jackets of those who were casting stones at Stephen, the first martyr mentioned in the book of Acts, Saul watched as this individual asked God to forgive his executioners for what they were doing modeling the same words that Jesus Christ uh, gave at the cross in his own last testimony before he died to allow each other, all those who were witnessing to know that he did not hold them in bitterness and in, um, in anger, but was forgiving them even as they were persecuting him. That Saul later turned out to be Paul as God met him on the road to Damascus. Undoubtedly, that pierced his conscience, for the Bible tells us that God confronted Paul and says, why are you kicking against the goads? Meaning, why are you resisting what's happening within your own conscience towards me? Just like Jesus Christ was glorified at the moment that he committed uh, the uh, allowed perfect obedience to the will of the Father and allowed himself to be sacrificed on our behalf, the world looked at him as if he had failed and if he was a loser in every way, but yet in reality, he was a victor beyond victor, wasn't he? So when we love and we think that our testimony is falling on deaf ears and deaf hearts, let us understand that they didn't fully understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross at that moment in which he hung there until sometime afterwards. So let us not grow discouraged when our love uh, is taken advantage of and abused and often uh, received as enablement to continue on in poor behavior because often it takes time for the individual to understand that it is truly love in which we are showing them and not condoning the sin that they are acting within. Number two, like Jesus, to love one another in this way will take our perfect obedience. Let us understand that if we love unconditionally and selflessly with sacrificial understanding in our minds and in our hearts, it is going to take full obedience and submission to the Spirit of God to do so. It doesn't come natural, this love. It is a work of the Holy Spirit within us to allow us to love this way, and I'll explain that more as we go on. Number three, let us remember that this is the testimony that Jesus said that we can give to the world as we wait for his return to show that we are truly of him. It is one of our greatest witnesses for the kingdom of God, for Jesus Christ. One of my favorite pastors, A.W. Tozer, said this. He said if the church would love each other the way God had instructed in the manner in which Christ had loved us, the world would be pounding down the doors of the church to get in. As we look for God to transform our own church, our own hearts, let us understand that this is what he would have us to do. If we want to be obedient to him, then we need to love each other as Christ loved us. For the witness to the world in which we can be. And therefore, 
allow the world to see in and through us the incredible work that the love of God has done in us and share with them that it can do the same thing in their life too. Only for the love of God.